Tonight, I want to put a cap on this study that I've called Forged in Fire, Faith After Deconstruction, and I've used one verse out of 1 Peter uh, as kind of a basis of how our faith is refined, and as we go through the process of refining and uh, reconstructing and reimagining our faith, one of the things that we do is we begin to have a better understanding of components of our faith, and sometimes we begin to change our outlook on those. And so tonight, uh, we are going to kind of put it in a frame that is going to be a little bit different. What I want to do is I want to talk a little bit about some of the main things that people often uh, go through a deconstruction, reconstruction, and reimagining process. So there are uh, several of those. And there is an artist by the name of David Hayward that has put uh, out a, a car cartoon book that actually is quite insightful. And I'm going to show you a few of those pictures. And then at the end, we're going to have a short video of testimony from two individuals. And so that's kind of our, our frame of thought here for tonight. So this is what we've been using, talking about faith going through a process of multiple cycles of restructuring and, and re-envisioning. And uh, the way we have talked about it is stages of simplicity, complexity, perplexity, and harmony. And it comes on the heels of this verse, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7, uh, these things come. And in the book of First Peter, it's trials, uh, it's issues of suffering uh, that cause us to go through certain phases of uh, adjustment. And it he talks about this as being refined by fire and that our faith, which is proved genuine, it's not something that is a masquerade, will result in praise and glory and honor when Christ is revealed. So that's the verse that we've been using. The last week I introduced a concept that I think is helpful for us to understand our own journey of faith. I, uh, I talked about simplicity, complexity, perplexity, and harmony, sort of like our ride in a car. And we talked a little bit about simplicity being like a young child that's in the back seat of a car um, they are safe, they are sound, uh, they need to be entertained sometimes for a long trip, but they're kind of unaware because they're too short to see what's going on around them. They can't see behind them, they can't see out the windows, and they certainly don't understand the whole process of how a car operates and what the driver is doing to get it to move ahead. At some point in time, that uh, that child moves up to the front seat and they begin to ride in the passenger seat and they begin to look at all the gauges. They begin to understand that uh, the car is much more complex than what they first envisioned. And uh, they see the complexities, but they don't actually know how to operate the vehicle. Then people begin to get their learner's permit and they move over into the driver's uh, seat and they need to kind of navigate many different types of conditions 
um, the potholes and detours and constructions and accidents are all things that need to be navigated with the skills that have been learned over the course of a lifetime, really. When you think about when you first learned how to drive and where you are now after all the years of driving in uh, wind and rain and snow and that type of thing, you, you had the skills, but you weren't uh, perfecting them. Uh, that comes with experience. And then we talked a little bit about harmony sort of being like no matter where you're sitting, back seat, passenger seat, or driver's seat, harmony is when you re reach the destination safely. And uh, you can uh, be joyful that uh, you were able to go on the journey. And um, as you arrive, then you're thankful for the safety and the scenery that uh, you were able to see along the way. So it's a very simplistic illustration, but our faith is sort of like that as well. So on this journey of faith, taking that car analogy a little bit farther, when we drive, sometimes there will be certain warning uh, lights that will come on. It might be an oil light. It might be a tire pressure. It might be check engine. Um, it might be low washer fluid. It could be anything, really. And those uh, type of warnings are prompting us to take action in some way. And so we might have to pull into the gas station and fill the tire with air we might have to take our car in because uh, maybe we feel the brakes are hanging up. Those type of things force us to make choices, and um, we really have no control over that. All we can do is react to it and do what we need to do in light of it. So when we think about this journey of faith, there are certain warning signs that come up when you begin to move farther into your faith, simplistic answers and even complex answers sometimes uh, leave little to be desired. And usually what has been noticed over uh, the years is there's usually six subject matters that cause people to reevaluate their uh, faith and begin to um, look at their faith through different lenses, perhaps through different uh, individuals that have um, helped them along the way or authors, that type of thing. So here they are. The six things are the Bible, eternal torment, penal substitutionary atonement, suffering in the world, end time scenarios, and the church. So um when a person goes through some deconstruction, it sometimes comes upon them because of some type of suffering that has come into their life. Maybe they lost a loved one and they begin to question things like suffering in the world. Uh, sometimes there is something that doesn't jive with their spirit and they begin to question things through um, a logical process of deduction and uh most of the time, when people go through kind of a deconstruction, reconstruction journey, uh, it is something that 
comes upon them. It's not like they seek it out. Just like when we get into the car and turn on the engine, uh, we don't want those warning lights to come on, but they do. And we can't ignore them. And so here on the right side of the screen, uh, I mentioned the fact that this deconstruction, reconstruction is something that comes upon us and we can either ignore it or try to cover it up. I remember an episode of the Big Bang Theory where Penny had warning lights come on in her car and she just decided to ignore them. And that sent Sheldon into a rage because he is such a, uh, you know, compulsive type of personality and stuff. And so you can put a piece of tape over the red light or you can cover it up in some way or ignore it. But the potential for a breakdown occurs because there has been the ignoring of it. So uh, I was mentioning a moment ago about a pastor who uh, turned artist and he's trying to communicate through some of his material and he's a cartoonist and his name is David Hayward and he put out a book called Flip It Like This and the imagery of that was how Jesus went into the temple and flipped the tables as kind of a, a different analogy of uh, going through this deconstruction and reconstruction that the entire nation of Israel, ironically enough, had to go through. This is what he says at the beginning of his book, and this is used as a way of giving context to a couple of the cartoons I'm going to show you. He says at the beginning of this book, my hope is that art, like action, speak louder than words. I hope the image of Jesus showing a woman how to flip a table sticks with you. Art is like that, as opposed to words, which can more easily bounce off or filter through or get stuck in the brain. Visual art seems to bypass our rational thoughts, defense mechanisms, prejudice, presumptions, and biases. So with that in mind and that context, uh, we're going to look at these six things, and I'm going to give you a cartoon element of it as a way of explaining it as well. So first of all, we've talked of this a little bit uh, in the past, and um, what I think is important about this is remembering that in the process of uh, looking at the Bible, we need to keep a couple of things in mind, okay? So here's what we need to keep in mind, that the scriptures are the cornerstone of uh, the Christian faith, and especially within evangelical circles, uh, the Bible is a source of authority. And because of that, there is often a defense of the Bible with a uh, ignoring of the check engine light when it comes to things that come up within the Bible. So Christians tend to base their faith on the scriptures, and it is of utmost importance. But when it becomes the linchpin for everything that we hold dear, then we get ourselves into some troubles. And the reason why people become very defensive about the Bible, or at least the way they see the Bible, is um, 
is fear. And it's the fear that every type of hope or assurance uh, that they have will crumble if the Bible is seen to be uh, stuck at a point in time and that we need to uh, realize that there's different contexts and circumstances that we must keep in mind in order not to take the Bible so literalistically that um, it becomes a prison in in our faith journey. So you can see at the bottom of the screen here, the reality is that there's often a misunderstanding of what the Bible is. And we've talked about this a little bit before. It's not a book that's downloaded from heaven straight from God. Uh, it is a library, number one. And number two, there are intermediaries, uh, intermediaries called writers that have their own time, their own place, and their own culture and set of circumstances. But they're not the only intermediary. We are, too, as readers. And we are uh, stuck in the same way in our circumstances, our context, and that type of thing. Now, when you put these two intermediaries uh, together and you need to bridge contexts and different worlds, many times uh, there's a lot of misapplication uh, of what the scripture is saying or what it's intending for people to notice and to apply. So, Number one is this idea of uh, the scriptures and remembering that the we often call it the word of God, but a better term for it is biblos or scriptures. There's only one thing that is called the word of God. That's Jesus. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. So with that in mind, here's a cartoon. And I'm going to minimize these, uh, this so you can see the whole thing. So David Hayward says um, in a couple of these uh, panels here about the scriptures, welcome to the faith. Now, here's our complimentary box outside of which you should never, ever think again. And that's kind of how some people view the scriptures is, okay, it's within the pages here. Don't think outside this box. Don't take into consideration things like science or psychology or some of the other arts. Then on the right side of this page, uh, he says uh, what a lot of times people will say, the Bible clearly says, but in reality, the that comment is more accurately described as my interpretation of the Bible to me clearly says what I want it to say. And so a lot of times people will use a phrase the Bible clearly says, and I think all of us here tonight realize, because we've been in the pages of the scriptures long enough to know that the Bible is a complex book, and the Bible rarely says anything clearly outside of circumstances, contexts, and cultures that need to be kept in mind. So Again, here's a piece of art, and it kind of grabs us, especially the one on the left side. A lot of times in churches, um, there's faith statements, and you are required not to think outside that box. Um, and, and so you're not allowed to question. You're not allowed to explore. And a lot of times the reasoning for it is here on the right side. Well, you can't do that because the Bible clearly says. 
So hopefully that is something that helps you to uh, visualize. Okay, number, here is a, uh, I'm also going to give you a couple of quotes tonight too. So this goes all the way back. Listen to this. Uh, there is a monk by the name of St. Maximus that was given the nickname, the Confessor. He lived it from 579 to 662 AD. And all the way back then, you, this is not a current topic. Uh, this is something that goes all the way back into uh, close to uh, many of the church councils. But he said this, a person who seeks God with true devotion should not be dominated by the literal text, lest he or she unintentionally and unknowingly receives not God, but the things that refer to God, that is, lest he feel a dangerous affection for the words of Scripture instead of for the word, capital W. That's referring to Jesus um, as the word. So um, with that in mind, let me bring us back up here. Uh, do you have any thoughts or comments on that first area that people often go through as they uh, deconstruct, reconstruct, or reimagine this subject? Okay. The next one is eternal torment. So we confess that God is love, um, and many people begin to think a little bit about uh, the punishment in the afterlife being an, et an eternal torture of people that have not uh, accepted God or trusted Christ. Um and when we begin to think about that subject, a lot of times we go, okay, how is that just? We live a blip of time uh, in, called our life, and there's an eternal punishment for that. So a lot of times people go, well, if God is so concerned about justice, he violates his own concern about justice uh, because the timeline or the timestamp alone uh, goes far beyond um, what would be a reasonable perspective of justice in judgment. So um, once you begin to look at different components of the Bible, and you begin to look especially at the doctrine of hell, what you're going to find is that the Old Testament doesn't mention hell. The New Testament, where it is mentioned, has some particular contextual elements as well. And that is Gehenna being a trash heap that had a historical importance in the life of Israel. But um, it is also something that later in Christian theology, and I'm going to show you here on the slide, uh, how the early church actually had a different viewpoint on this area. But what you're going to find is that as you stop and not only look at the text, but you begin to think logically about some things, you begin to go, oh, are there other options? And the answer to that is, yes, there is. There are other options. Um, the doctrine of an eternal conscious torment, another word for hell, um, how it is reconciled with the love of God it has been debated and wrestled with 
for centuries and centuries. And um, what's interesting is in the first five or six centuries of Christianity, there were six known early theological schools, of which four of them, Alexandria, Antioch, Caesarea, Edessa, and uh, Nisibis, were universalist uh, in their perspective, that all people will eventually be reconciled to God. One out of Ephesus accepted conditional immortality. That is, uh, people have eternal life if they obey God and trust God, and the rest are annihilated, okay? Or in other words, they perish. It's the one out of Carthage and Rome that becomes kind of the school of endless conscious punishment of the wicked. So this is summarized from a book, the new Schaff Herzog uh, book of his uh, church history. Um, so one of the things that you could do if you wanted to explore this is actually do kind of like a, a time zone study of any of these particular topics and see what the early church thought when it started to kind of change and ask the question, why did it begin to change in its perspective? As you can see, using the car analogy, uh, this is beyond complex, sitting in the uh, passenger seat. As a person tries to drive through this particular roadway, uh, there's many things that are perplexing to it. Because depending upon where you turn in the scripture, you can make a case for universalism, and in other cases, you can make a good case for judgment as well. And how these two elements come together is a very complex and perplexing um, uh, dynamic and, and project. Now, the reason many people don't wrestle with this is because they're not given the total picture. They've been given one perspective through the church that they go to or the school that they go to. So here's the here's the uh, another one. The uh, so we're this is closely related to eternal torment. Um, how do you get out from under eternal torment? Uh, this is a view of atonement, which is a big word. Um, that goes uh, all the way back into the book of Leviticus, the uh, atonement idea. And of course, within Judaism, you have Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. How do you get right with God? Well, one theory, it's called the penal substitutionary theory um, of atonement, or PSA, is this idea that God's wrath is so great against mankind that Jesus had to take the bullet of judgment, and he had to experience the full fury of God's wrath on the cross so that God can now love us and forgive us. This theory, though, is also something that has developed over time and wasn't really reflective of the early church. It comes along a little bit later, and as it does, it's um, it is, has become the primary and uh, dominant viewpoint in theology of evangelical Christianity. So 
90% of evangelicals believe in penal substitutionary atonement, um, but that's not the only one. There's uh, theories of atonement that are much earlier than that. And uh, you have the ransom theory, you have the exemplar theory, you have some different theories of atonement that the early church really held to before this kind of develops. What you'll find is that Again, this subject matter here on eternal torment is closely connected to this one. And when people go through a process of thinking through this and trying to reconcile it with God's love, how does God's love interact with conscious eternal torment? And why could God not forgive without punishing his son? So that's at the center of that question as well. So then that the follow-up to that is, well, if Jesus didn't die so I can get saved. Why did he die? And what was the purpose of the death? Was it to be revelatory of God's love, who rather than um, uh, wanting to fight back, says from the cross, Father, forgive them. Those type of things are deep, deep discussions. And depending upon what sector of Christianity um, you grew up in, you will have different theories on the atonement. Now, in a lot of these subject matters, there are books that have been written, like Four Views of the Atonement and Four Views of Hell. There's a series that was uh, put out by different authors that are in these books. They make their case. Then the other authors criticize uh, that author's case, and then he in turn does the same on the other three as well. So you can look for that uh, if you have interest in any particular uh, subject matter. It's usually five views of this or four views of that, and um, it does it does give you a well-rounded uh, understanding of. Uh, the early churches struggle with certain teachings and what to do with them. But this subject is one of those that uh, some people have wrestled with, and it has caused them to go into deconstruction. So here's the, here's the cartoon for these two. Once you hold on to a particular viewpoint of something, um, we begin to defend it. So that's reflected here in the signs that are held up. I believe I'm right. I believe I'm right. And Jesus gets trampled on because his sign says, I believe in love. And the one on the right panel is um, God saying, for I have not given you the spirit of fear. And we do know that over several hundred times in the scripture, uh, the commandment, do not fear, is found both in Old and New Testament. So here's a representation of the church that says, God is saying, I have not given you a spirit of fear. And the church is saying, no, leave that part up to me. So it it is kind of, again, thinking about how how the church uses some teachings and sometimes abuses some teachings uh, in the way that they are um, uh, controlling people in the process of some of these teachings. Okay, let me stop there. We've got a couple more to go, three more to go, but any thoughts?
Okay. So here's the other big one. And this is the one that people walk away from their faith entirely on. Um, and that is not just suffering in the world, but in particular suffering in their family. Uh, when there is there's no rhyme or reason for the type of sorrow that happens to some people. Um, there are people every day all around the world that begin to question the existence of God because of the suffering in the world. And I imagine a lot of that is going on in the Ukraine and in Israel and Palestine as we speak. Um, David Bentley Hart, very profound theologian, uh, talks about this issue as being number one. Uh, we might call it the big enchilada. I mean, it's it's the one that most people struggle with the most and the most difficult one to answer with any sense of intelligence. Um, if God is good, why do children suffer? Why do innocent people die? And I don't know it's just mean by at the hands of war. It can be a tsunami. It can be a hurricane. It can be a lot of these different types of things. Uh, this is often called theodicy, a technical term. Uh, why is there evil in the world? Um, I think authors have tried to make strides in this area to help us, but ultimately it's a matter of faith to trust in God, even though we can't understand the world around us. Um, I do think that a lot of times when we give glib answers, though, that is very unsatisfactory to people who are hurting the deepest. And that it might be our response to it more than anything that turns people off. It's it it's perplexing. It's a mystery. Um, we don't have adequate answers for these things. We might get glimpses of good that comes out of it, but um, in total, we don't have a complete understanding. Maybe the thing that helps us the most, I guess, this isn't a complete answer, but it's the last bullet point. For many of the problems of suffering in the world, for example, right now in Ukraine and right now in Palestine and Israel, these are man-made. These are not uh, God-made um, areas of suffering. Um, elements like um, world hunger. Uh, some of that is man-made because of the lack of sharing of resources. Um, when we think about climate change happening, that's man-made. Uh, we are seeing the consequences of ignoring the warning lights on the dashboard about creation care and those type of things. But there are some there are some that make no sense at all. Uh, whether it is something that happens um, like accidents uh, that are unexpected. Up here about a week or so ago, um, an individual lost their life when an individual got on to the freeway the wrong way after being chased by the police. Those type of things are partially man-made, but you know, in the sense of being at the 
wrong place at the wrong time uh, is a, a mystery there. If it had been a minute earlier or later, that particular thing probably wouldn't have happened. Uh, so a lot of these things are very, very complex. All right, here's the cartoon for this one. So on the left panel, uh, a switch, an on-off switch. Um, a lot of times, and this is your pastor most of the time that's saying, no, 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 to question my beliefs. Um, I think maybe we need to just trust that a person's genuineness in asking questions is for their good. I think shutting people up and not allowing them to question their faith will ultimately probably have more of a harmful effect than struggling with the questions themselves. And then on the right panel here, there's one of these fish that's swimming upstream with questions on their mind while the rest is flowing downstream. So, these are the type of things I think we all struggle with in this whole journey of faith. But um, let me see if you have some thoughts before I move to the last couple of ones here. Any thoughts? Okay. So the next couple are um, one end time scenarios. Um. It's interesting to me, especially since I came to faith in 1975 and I was thrown into the vortex of the late great planet Earth hype. Those were my initial uh, introductions to Christianity. And if you remember that, you'll remember that... Um, Everybody was kind of obsessed with end time scenarios. That's kind of ebbed and flowed, excuse me, a little bit over the years. It seems to gain traction, especially when something is happening in the Middle East. And so a lot of times what might happen now is because of the war that is going on between Israel and Palestine, People get hyped up and they begin to look and say, is this a fulfillment of prophecy? What I have found over the years that I've uh, been following Christ is that there's extremisms in end time scenarios. And the foolish part of it is when people try to make dated predictions. And when people try to make predictions as to when either rapture or second coming is going to occur, um, there's a long, long string of failed fulfillments. And what we find is that many of the same issues that we were struggling with back in the 70s are some of the same tensions that we're feeling here in the 21st century. And after a while, you begin to realize that mm, most of us don't know what we're talking about in this area at all. We just finished the book of Daniel study, and I tried to 
show you to the best of my ability that the book of Daniel isn't an end time prediction. There's a lot of components there that are talking about a particular era of time, uh, especially with what the Jews were going through under Antiochus Epiphanes and that type of thing. But that doesn't appeal to people as much as people saying, hey, I've got, you know, 77 reasons why Jesus is going to return in 1977. Well, where are those type of books now? Well, they're in the Goodwill store. That's where they're at. I mean, they're not they're not taken seriously because things have come and gone. And so we have to be really careful here. Some some uh, pastors, some uh, some theologians. I mean, this is their hobby horse. This is the you know, this is all they ever talk about is end times. And I think it's um, I, I really think it's out of out of balance. Um, and it, it's something that we need to be aware of. Okay, one more here. Uh, here's a here's another cartoon for you. Um, Jesus is being left behind, to use the left behind analogy, uh, as the church says, come follow me. And then in a car, and the uh, reason I use this one is, um, you'll remember in the 70s, there was uh, contemporary Christian music that was starting to become popular, and um, Barry Maguire had Eve of Destruction as a song that was a hit. Uh, Larry Norman had some things about talking about um, uh, if we're, if we're all be ready, that type of thing. Um, and, you know, there was a lot of imagery about where will you be when the rapture occurs and what happens if you're driving the car? I mean, a lot of those type of things. So, Again, these cartoons are tongue in cheek. However, they do make some points that cause us to um, contemplate and think about a little bit more some of these these ideas that we've been exposed to and maybe we take for granted. So I'm going to do this one last one, and then um, we're going to um, we're going to shift. I'm going to give you a, a video and a couple more quotes, but I want to see if you have any questions. But the last one is the nature of the church, the mission of the church. Um, what is the church's ideas of what their role is in the world? I think a lot of times people do give up on the church because of some post-traumatic stress that they've been in, in different types of churches that have been extreme and have caused deep elements of hurt. And that's what this final cartoon is kind of showing us uh here is a gay man who is saying sorry jesus but i think i'm gay and jesus is saying to him dude relax i knew that long before you did um that there are elements though that continue to be used in the church as a way of scapegoating people or uh calling them degenerates or uh, different things like that. And I don't know how on earth the Westboro Baptist Church continues to uh, remain on earth, to tell you the honest truth. 
They desecrate the funerals of loved ones and military personnel holding up picket signs over one issue, and that is LGBT uh, presence and rights in our world. And um, yet the church is to be a source of healing. Um, it's not to be a hotel, it's a hospital uh, to help us through the process of life and the journey of life that Nixon wounds us all. So we hold out good news. We hold out hope because Jesus did enter into this world incarnationally and, and uh, showed us a way to live and to love. And um, those, those are the things that I think are most important. But when a church gets entangled politically, uh, a lot of times people get turned off by that. I think one of the brilliance of uh, our early church, uh, early um, founders of our country was to keep the idea of church and state separate. Um, there's a lot of wisdom in that because once we begin to think that we are God's ambassadors, not just in sharing good news and hope and love, but also the way the world is to work, uh, there's a lot of hurt and heartache that we bring into the world. So, all right. So do you have any questions, any thoughts? Uh, I'm going to give you a testimonial. It's about eight minutes long. What time do we have here? Let's see. We're at, this will work out great. But do you have any questions or thoughts that you have at this point? Okay, so what you're going to watch for the next few minutes was an interview that was done. Um, and some of you might have heard of singer-songwriter uh, Audrey Assad. Uh, we've sung a few of her songs uh, at Shade Tree. And the other is an individual that was in a heavy metal band that became a, an Episcopal, I think it's Episcopal, or is it an Orthodox priest? And they, they give uh, a little bit of their testimony of the process that they went through as they kind of evaluated their faith and, and what they felt they were left with at, at the end of that process. So let's watch this at that time, at this time. Welcome back to today's discussion on Unbelievable. Uh, we're talking about the Christian music scene and hearing the story of Audrey Assad and Father Chris Foley, um, both of whom have had uh, careers in, in quote-unquote Christian music slash Christian bands, though, you know, we can debate whether these are just Christians in a band or whatever. Um, but the uh, the question that, that we've been looking at today, Audrey, is, you know, why to some extent there have been so many of these stories of late of people deconstructing and so on. Yours is not the only one. I, I mentioned others such as Michael and Lisa Gunga, um, uh, John Steingard, Kevin Max, uh, Dave, Dave Bazan. Um, so, uh, you know, do, do you, I mean, maybe there isn't anything specific behind this. Maybe it's just that people go on journeys and, and we're more, aware of you know our stars you know the people we follow through social media and everything else than pe perhaps we ever were but but what do you think there's sort of do, do you notice anything in this particular kind of whole area um of of people going on similar journeys to you in the christian music i scene? do and i mean i know a lot of those people personally we've had many conversations about why and 
without betraying anyone's confidence, I think it's safe to say a similar sentiment or a similar feeling to what Father Chris, you expressed about we weren't told the whole story. Um, there comes a point when you were raised in a very insular way, which a lot of us were um, to some degree or another sort of uh, taught that th- this is the structure of things. This is the order of things. Um, you know, in my case, even like being taught that evolution was an evil philosophy that sought to undermine the creator of the universe and me getting to a point where my, my reason outpaced my need to obey the rules because I started getting too curious. You know, I didn't even know who Martin Luther was. I was so insulated from even that because we were, we were um, instructed only to read Plymouth Brethren authors. And I remember the moment that it changed because I was uh, in high school and I was in a church library somewhere and I found a Josephus book and I had never heard of Josephus, which is, you know, he was a scribe and writer at the time of Christ around that same era in that same era. And um, I was reading through this book and thinking like, wait, there's more information. What if this is forbidden, like what else is forbidden? You know, this kind of, forbidden fruit fear-based uh way of living can produce a need to go find out what's been hidden because um in my opinion a thinking person which every person is a thinking person but um a curious intellectually stimulated interested person um being shown all of a sudden like wait there's a lot more out here I've never even considered or given the time of day to and I want to do that I mean I think it's natural you know I don't think it's an evil thing I think it makes so much sense that when for most of your life you've been told for fear-based reasons to stay away from so much and um I remember my brother and this is the last thing I'll say about this but like my brother went on a journey like mine years before I did and at the time he was really into like Dawkins and Hitchens and he was trying to, he was trying to get me to come towards that. And he was sending me things and, you know, I was reading them and going like, I just don't, I mean, I entertained it, you know, cause I, how could you not at that point? But I remember him saying this thing that really stuck to me and he said, you know, they said that like, it would be backsliding for me to um, leave behind some of these ideas and that my life would, would be terrible. And that, my relationships would suffer. And he said, but for me, it's been the opposite. For me, I'm flourishing more than I ever have because I'm allowing my mind to explore the things that it wants to explore. And I'm not living from angst and fear all the time. And um, I don't think that Christianity and angst and fear have to be synonymous, but I think a lot of us were raised in a tradition where they were, where they were synonymous. And so the exploration phase feels like necessary it's like an adolescence in a way that we weren't given the chance to have and so I'm not saying that's what mine is but I think there is part there's definitely part of me that's being a a 16 year old now instead of at 16 because I just wasn't given the opportunity to do that yeah yeah but Father Chris any any thoughts and I guess appreciation I suppose for the kind of journey that Audrey felt she had to go on yeah no I I totally resonate with everything that she's saying I mean so in this sense I you know I guess I'm an ex-evangelical too, um, because you know I feel like you know the the God that I grew up um, fearing was this kind of tyrannical God that was just kind of 
you know, shaking his finger and, uh, you know, he had to ultimately kill his son in order to appease his own kind of wrathful, um, I don't know, and, and to kind of start to study the history of the church and understand that, you know, there's a lot of different ways of thinking about God, even within Christianity, and that the little bubble that I grew up in, when that's all you know, you think that's all there is. Um, but to be, you know, like 24, 25, and, and starting to kind of read some of the Greek patristic fathers and how they talked about salvation and God, it was like, for the first time in my life, I felt like, oh, you know, God really loves me. And I don't think I, I never totally knew that. <laughs> I was told he did, but there was a whole list of expectations and, and everything. So again, to kind of fall back into the arms of just something new, you know, new for me, certainly, but to realize this little evangelical culture is a little blip on the screen in the history of, of Christendom. And then to, you know, all of a sudden start to see that a lot of my evangelicalism was a knee-jerk reaction against Rome and all the baggage that comes with that. And then to learn that Eastern Orthodoxy is like the second largest body in Christendom in the it, world. Is is there an argument then that a lot of these quote-unquote ex-evangelicals, people who are deconstructing so on, are, are more reacting to a particular Christian subculture, and maybe a subculture that they've kind of seen the dirty side of, having been in the CCM scene, if you like, Yeah, um, I mean, rather, that, rather than Christianity itself necessarily. Yeah, I mean, that's certainly my perspective, but, you know, I'm not, you know, I haven't come to the kind of the same place like Audrey has, but, you know, from my experience, I feel like I was on my way out of the church and if I hadn't uh, experienced the, the fullness of and the joy of the, the Orthodox faith, I, you know, I don't know where I would be, you know, at this point. So I, I feel like in a way I was on my way towards deconstructing, but my beef was not so much with with God himself as it was kind of the Christian culture around me. Um, and so, you know, I was angry for a time. I think it's it's grief, you know, part one of the stages of, of grief is anger. And so I went through that, but I also knew, like, I don't want to build my my spiritual life on on anger and being reactionary, because that's just a shifting sand. So the more I read about kind of orthodox spirituality and the monastic tradition of, you know, we want to be reactionary of, in the heart. You know, the problem is not out here; the problem is here, and kind of doing this hard inner work, like Audrey, what you described of just having to struggle through you know, those toxic, you know, abusive systems. That's that's part of what salvation, I think, is ultimately, yeah. Okay, before I bring us back up on the screen, uh, I included in your handout, uh, this also comes from David Hayward, uh, the naked pastor. And um, the reason I'm giving you this phases of deconstruction, it kind of parallels um, the stages of grief. And that's what uh, Father Chris was talking about in his testimony there a little bit. I'm not going to read through all these, but I see some similarity of denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance being phases, um, or we might call them rest stops on this journey 
that we go through that some people spend longer in certain stages than other people do. Some people never move beyond certain stages. Um, but hopefully what we do, and again, this is just like when we go through grief uh, through the loss of someone. Uh, we go through the process all over again. Um, and I think it's true that we will probably go through this cycle a number of times in our uh, journey through this life uh, and our faith quest. So I'm going to show you two quick things that I'm going to bring down the screen sharing. Uh, this is uh, uh, the last one that I want to show to you. Uh, the path isn't a straight line. It's a uh, spiral. And you continually come back to the things you thought you understood and see deeper truths. Uh, Barry Gillespie uh, be, uh, uh, quote. So I'll bring up the, uh, bring us all up again and, and stop the share and see if you have any thoughts or questions if we finish up this topic tonight. Anything you want to ask or comment on? I, these, uh, this whole topic reminds me of Rachel Held Evans books. Uh, they were seemed to be all about her deconstruction and reconstruction. Yeah. And she's such a wonderful author. It's, uh, it's a shame we lost her at such a young age. Uh, yeah, the, and um, her passing away uh, in many ways uh, shook the ex-evangelical world uh, because she was such an individual that was helping other people think through the process of deconstructing and reimagining faith. Um, her sister uh, put a book out about her grief in the loss of Rachel Held Evans. And um, actually, it was you that lent that to me, Brenda. Now, that's a very good uh, book. I can't remember the title of it off the top of my head, but um, it, uh, it, is, it was something that was very, very helpful in, in thinking about um, her own adjustment to uh, the loss of Rachel. But yeah, Rachel has put out a few different books and she was really a lifeline to many people that uh, were going through the process. And uh, so thanks for bringing up her name. I think she's worth um, worth reading. So if you haven't done any reading of Rachel Held Evans, that'd be a great place to continue your uh, your thinking about this topic. Other thoughts? Well, hopefully um, this short little survey uh, will help you understand yourself, but all, more, even maybe more importantly, understand others that are finding it difficult to stay within the church because of some of the issues that this topic brings up. So, all right, that's all I have for you tonight. Thank you. Thanks, last last chance. Okay. All right. All right. We'll see you next Good Wednesday night. night. Okay. Right. Good night. Good night. Good night. Good night. Good night.